Welcome to the Enable Me podcast series, where we bring together stroke survivors, health professionals and researchers, providing you with practical advice to enable you on your journey to reclaim your life after stroke. The advice given in this podcast is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. You can join the conversation at enableme.org.au. This series is presented by Australia Stroke Foundation, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. One of the many ways that a stroke can affect your brain is its impact on your sense of sight. And because so much of the way we interact with the world and how the world interacts with us is based on vision, it can have a very big impact on your life. In this episode, we're going to talk about how a stroke can affect your eyes and your ability to see and what your options are if you have vision problems after a stroke. We've put this podcast together with Vision Australia, so I want to thank them for all their help and expertise. Also, I should say that we are recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic, so none of the guests are here today. We're all connecting remotely. Joining me on the line is stroke survivor and Australia's first blind fashion designer, Nikki Hind. Hello, Nikki. Hello, how are you? I'm great. Uh, we also have orthoptist Nabil Jacob, who is also client relationship manager with Vision Australia. Hello, Nabil. Hello, how are you? I am good, thank you. Uh, finally, from the Stroke Foundation Stroke Line, we have physiotherapist Catherine Yong. Hi, Kath. Hi, hello. Hi, Chris. So I'll get to each of you in turn, but Nikki, I wanted to start with you and the question that I always ask stroke survivors on this podcast. Could you briefly tell us the story of how you had your stroke? Uh, when, when I was... Uh, showing my children this question a little earlier, they said, "Just tell them the answer is no. I can't. I can't briefly tell you anything. Apparently, I'm hopeless at briefly telling any story, but um, I will do my best. I have something that is called ineffective tissue plasminogen activator, which sounds like a Doctor Who episode. It's the inability of your blood to dissolve its own clots. And I had my stroke when I was pregnant. Um, so it's a it seems very unusual. I, I, it, neither myself or anybody else can identify exactly when I had the stroke that left me legally blind, which may sound quite bizarre. But um, I was, I was pregnant, and I was told that I lost the baby. So my body was going through the process of a miscarriage, and there's all sorts of things that go along with that physical things um, and, and my vision was definitely blurred along with that. And also I, uh, I've i been legally blind in one eye, in my left eye, uh, since I was a child. So I was already used to my vision not being great and I certainly did notice that my um, that I couldn't see properly and I did tell the doctors, but there was so much going on around that with um, with trying to save the baby and wondering what was going on with the pregnancy that I that I honestly couldn't pinpoint the the exact time, which I know sounds sounds quite bizarre. But it did have an effect on your vision. Is that correct? Yes, it killed um, a part of my brain that's about the size of a fifty cent piece that processes what comes in through my eyes. Yeah, so it's so it's damaged to the brain tissue. It's not damaged to my eyes as such. So I lost fifty percent. Of, I lost the ability to process 50% of the field of vision in both eyes. As I said, I was already legally blind in my left eye anyway. So now I can see out of the inside half of my right eye. Okay, so you can see 
the the left side but from your right eye. Is that correct? What can I see? It's quite bizarre. I, I had 20-20 vision in what I call my good eye, my right eye, and the half of that eye that I can still process vision with is still very close to 20-20 vision. So, yes, I have close to 20-20 vision in half of one of my eyes, the right the right eye. So, so far as what I can actually see how that plays out, it's I have no peripheral vision and I can't judge um, depth and speed and distance and those things. For those of you old enough to have seen Wayne's World, or um, there's a scene in that where he's he's talking to the girlfriend and he, and he puts his hand over one eye and, and then the other and he's saying camera one, camera two. It's a bit like that, I, I, that things are not where I think they are. I see them off centre and also you need two eyes to focus. So I am like several times a second I'm constantly um, flicking away from and flicking back to whatever I'm trying to focus on. So it's almost like holding dry sand in your hand trying to keep a hold of what I'm looking at. Now, Nabil, I do want to ask you some questions about how this works in terms of the eyes and the brain. But first, I did say you are an orthoptist. Can you explain what is an orthoptist? So the orthoptist is part of the eye healthcare team, um, probably lesser known because you don't actually see an orthoptist straight in. Um, you're usually um, either referred to one if they're in private practice, or more often than not, you'll see an orthoptist um, working alongside an eye surgeon. So in a hospital eye department or a private ophthalmic clinic. Um, but many do work in places like Vision Australia and become low vision experts, um, research and other areas. Okay, so it is different to an optometrist? It definitely is. So op optometry is primary care. So you go in, you can get a full eye examination, um, but all the, all the professions generally overlap like a Venn diagram. So the optometrist's expertise is optical issues generally, um, and they're trained to pick up eye disease and refer on um, and treat even now these days. To an extent, the ophthalmologist is the doctor who does surgery and is the medical expert. And the orthoptist's basic skill is in the eye movement disorders, um, so what we call ocular motility. But we all overlap in terms of the things that we can do. Um, I'm sure we're going to get onto some of those eye movement disorders eventually. But first of all, I'm wondering about the what Nikki has described, where she has lost half of her field of vision in her eye. Can you explain how that works and how a stroke can cause that kind of issue? So you have two pathways that lead from each eye um, that go right to the back of the head, part of the brain, um, and that's where the part that does the visual processing is. So if you have a stroke um, from a bleed or a clot um, along that pathway, so from the front of the head to the back of the head where the visual part of the brain sits, um, you can um, have a visual field defect um, and that can be um, very dependent on where you had that uh, stroke episode. Um, so what it does, it actually kills away some of the fibres that transmit that part of the visual field um, so that you're no longer able to use that part. I believe it can be not just um, simply half the field of vision, but you can also lose one quarter of it as well in some cases. Is that one of the possibilities? That's correct. Um, and once again, that's also uh, determined by where the stroke takes place. Um, and that's called a quadrantinopia, as opposed to a hemianopia or hemianopsia, um, if you're in America. Um, and that's where half of the visual field is gone. Um, so it can be half, a quarter. Um, it can be the left and right side in each eye. It can be the right side um, in both eyes or the left side um, that you don't see well. Okay. And are there treatments that can help people recover from this? 
Generally, um, if a hemianopia or a quadrantinopia are going to repair, it usually shows in about three to six months post-stroke. Um, there's nothing much that can be really, uh, really be done for the for that. Um, so if it's going to repair, it's going to repair spontaneously. Otherwise, it's pretty much going to stay permanent. Okay, so that then becomes a matter of adapting and compensating for the the loss of of vision. That's correct. That's correct. And as um, was mentioned, that you can still generally see fairly clearly. So if you're looking at a face or telling the time or reading, so when you do have that peripheral field loss, generally it tends to spare the vision that you use for reading and recognizing faces. So that's probably a, a little bit of a silver lining. Um, um, and so you've only just lost that side vision. Um, not that that's anything that's insignificant. Nikki, what other things have you had to do to adjust to losing half your field of vision? Yeah, and of course, it's only half out of one eye too, because the other one just mm. really doesn't work at all. And the silver lining there that Nabil was speaking about, um, as soon as I realised I'd be able to see the detail in mm. my children's faces, I was so relieved. It's like everything else was was easier to cope with. The fear subsided. It's deceivingly exhausting to have to keep refocusing, refocusing, refocusing and pulling information in. One thing I certainly noticed and that fascinates me, I just find it fascinating, is the way the brain um, compensates because, as I say, I have no peripheral vision um, and I have no, you know, no ability to judge depth and, and distance. But, um, but I kind of do so long as I'm in a relatively familiar situation and I as I said I had this stroke when I was uh, pregnant so I was an adult I, I I already had internalized I guess what what the world means visually to me so I my brain sees much more than my eyes do and it's um but certainly it's exhausting Certainly, I don't drive. You do not want me on the road, obviously. Um, and I'm just much slower. Uh, as Nabil said, I can read. Very lucky I can read. Uh, but it's it's really hard. I can, um, and I can only do a certain amount of reading each day, much, much less and much more slowly than I than I used to. Uh, yeah, so that were, that was one of the things that was very difficult to get used to um it's exhausting mm. yeah exhausting and slow kath i'd like to get your perspective on this too first as i mentioned you work on stroke line how is stroke line going while everyone's locked in due to coronavirus yeah so we do get some different kind of calls so in terms of coronavirus i guess people are um asking a few more questions about how with their mental health at home um, yeah, as well as, as well as, you know, if, if stroke is actually, if they could call a hospital, if they're having a stroke, so things like that can actually be something that's playing on people's minds at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. But stroke line is up and running and. Stroke line is up and running. Yes. Yes, for sure. Stroke line is up and running as usual. Yeah. But I guess it's an interesting point though, that you said that if people are having a stroke, they should still be going to hospital as normal and not avoiding yes, it. Yes, definitely. Yes, yeah, so yeah. still using the FAST principle, um, looking at face, arms, speech, and then 
time. So getting calling triple zero, getting to a hospital as quickly as possible. Yeah, that's that's still all the same things as as before. It's really important to keep bringing that message forth to our stroke community and pe- people who are experiencing stroke. Yeah. Excellent. Now we are here to talk about vision, though. What are some of the <laughs> the impacts that you've heard about vision loss on people's lives over a stroke line? Yeah, so vision loss it can have a big impact on people's everyday lives. Um, this can include things like, I guess, people talk about that fatigue and that exhaustion around even simple things like finding objects, preparing a meal, getting dressed, and even things like getting a scare when others come into view out of nowhere and suddenly are right really close to them. This can actually make someone feel very insecure. So someone may walk past or not be spotted in someone's vision. And it's not that someone's being rude. It's just that they haven't really seen the other person come and approach them. So that's something that is actually quite a big thing for someone with vision loss. Uh, Vision can have a big impact on mobility and walking. So in the early days, someone might be learning how to walk again and visual issues on top of learning how to walk can add another layer of difficulty. So people rely on vision for balance. They may bump into things, fall or injure yourself. Um, They may have trouble navigating the community in places such as crowds, shopping centres, unpredictable, unfamiliar environments. It, It can affect someone's ability to drive again. This relates to how people socialise, get to work, access the community, and vision can also impact on work and job prospects, um, as some people describe not having an interview as the job requires a current driver's licence, which they may not have, um, limiting their job prospects. And of course, this all plays into things like relationships and roles in relationships. There's a lot. So with decreased vision, you may have to rely on others a little more uh, in driving, guiding through the community and daily activities. Um, and as well as that, things like decrease in independence, loss of confidence, decrease in mood, anxiety, grief and loss and, and identity as a whole in, in, in a world that seems quite different to them. Nikki, does this sound in line with some of your experience as well? Wow. Listening to all of that, Kath, yeah, it's very validating for me to hear and um, mm. and possibly very good for me to hear. Um, I can absolutely relate to all of those things and you make it, you make it sound like it can be quite challenging and it is. And I tend to be um, very independent and an optimist and there, but there are things that have been really difficult. Um, And my marriage broke down afterwards and that relying on people, as you say, that, you know, I think that's really hard to understand unless you're in a position where you where you have to especially um when you're a younger person and of course the extension of that is as a mum and someone who's quite a nurturer and who views herself as very capable the loss of the ability to um, have others depend on me to go and pick my parents up from the airport to go and you, you know like to go and help when a friend needs you it um you know, the inability to do those things as well as as relying. But um, certainly I used to work in public relations doing event management, absolutely loved it. There was a lot of driving in that and a lot of computer work. I was not able to go back to work doing the things I used to do and I would not initially tell people I was legally blind and I would do well with my applications. I'd do well in initial phone interviews and then I'd often get down to the last you know, three people and there'd be 
you know, starting to talk about details and I would say, you know, I, I don't have a license. I, I, um, you know, I'm legally blind and, and it, it, it would be the response of, oh, you know, you, you sound really great, but we don't have, you know, we're not set up to um, support someone with vision impairment and and I wouldn't get it was really disheartening I think I was um I was quite naive to be to begin with thinking yeah I can do this I'll just like whatever I can't get done in a day I'll do at home and uh but but, but people people were and I, I will say this is about this is 15 years ago um you know so people were even more reluctant I think people are a little possibly a bit better but it's still incredibly it's incredibly difficult to get work when you're legally blind um, in something that feels um, meaningful and and challenging and creative to you now Kath um, driving does seem to be one of the big issues there that comes up and we do have a whole podcast on driving so I'd encourage anyone listening to check that out if that is a topic that concerns them but briefly could you just talk about what are the options for people if they find that uh, their driving is affected by vision problems after a stroke yeah, so we do often get calls about vision and driving on stroke line. Um, medical clearance is needed to return to driving after a stroke. So a neurologist can give the overall all clear if it's safe to drive after a stroke. Um, they may need to do a vision assessment. And if there is a vision issue, then the road authorities want eyesight or visual fields tested. So um, an ophthalmologist or optometrist may need to assess and their assessment goes into the report for driving. Um, the report that they do will go to the neurologist and then it's important to inform the road authorities. So there's a lot of steps, but um, you can refer to the National Ostroad Fitness to Drive guidelines as well. Um, there are some minimum requirements re regarding visual field loss and double vision. Um, for example, you may need a certain number of degrees to pass your visual fields testing. And if you are cleared by an ophthalmologist or optometrist but have reduced sight, you may need an OT, um, occupational therapy driving assessment. Yeah, so a lot of people talk about other ways of, of um, accessing the community. It, it can be a very highly emotional time for someone. Um, they may ask for help from family or friends, use public transport in major cities, volunteer transport may be an option. Um, there's things like taxi subsidies, travellers' aids to transit in between stations. Um, and if you're not able to return to driving, then I think there are some rehabilitative services that can help you to regain your confidence and independence, accessing the local community and public transport. People call Stroke Line for many different reasons during their recovery. Some call from their hospital bed, others might call years down the track. The stroke journey can be a roller coaster, and no matter what stage you are in, we're here to help make that ride a little smoother. Strokeline is staffed by a team of qualified health professionals who have the latest evidence-based information. A big part of what the Strokeline team does is help to break the problem down, providing information on different treatment options, resources and services, and working out the best option for you. So whether you are setting new goals to get back to driving or work, or trying to find an approach to communication that works for you, or perhaps a carer finding it a bit tough, Strokeline is there for you. Call 1-800-STROKE. That's 1-800-787-653. Now, Nabil, I wanted to ask you about some of the other issues that people can have aside from just loss of visual field. Can you explain what those kind of things are and how they can affect someone's ability to see? Depending on where you have the stroke, if you have the stroke um uh, along the pathways that lead from the eyes to the brain, um, there are certain problems. And if you have 
the stroke in the actual part of the brain that does the processing, there can be different problems to there. So if you have the stroke in the part that's what we call the visual pathway, things like blurry vision, double vision, um, field loss, of, as we've talked about, hemianopia, um, you can have dry eyes, you can have sensitivity to light. Um, the other things that can happen is we talked about a hemianopia, but there's also another phenomenon called neglect, where patients tend to have a total disregard for the right or left side. Not Sometimes they can't see it, sometimes they can see it, but still not recognise it, which is a really difficult thing to get your head around. Um, and we um, can do find that quite often. Um, there's also depth perception problems. So um, as uh, we just heard, trying to judge depth and distance is very difficult. So if you've lost vision in one eye, but you've still got the other eye, um, if you think of a pair of stereo speakers, so going from mono to stereo, if you've only got one speaker, so sight's sort of similar, so you, don't, you can't judge that depth. But fortunately, the brain does learn to adapt uh, in three to six months after a stroke how to start using other cues to judge depth. Um, so you can get things down to um, not being able to recognise people and things, um, and even visual hallucinations uh, are not uncommon post-stroke. You said the brain adapts. Are there ways that as you, someone like you as an orthoptist or other professionals can help people to, to learn to adapt or to, to learn um, techniques to compensate? Certainly. There are, there are lots and lots of ways we can help um, people um, adapt to that, whether it's using glasses, um, prisms, and prisms are like optical lenses that are shaped like a triangle that can help um, stop double vision um, or being able to recognise part of the visual field. We can use patching, for example, if there's double vision. Um, there are magnifiers. Um, we can um, offer scanning therapy um, or even with the use of um, computer programs that help you um, with scanning therapy. Um, and it's not just the orthoptist there that can do all of those things. The OT um, comes in very, very importantly at this stage also. Um, so, for example, at Vision Australia, we employ OTs, orthoptists, orientation mobility specialists. They're all essentially low vision experts. So all of the problems that you've heard about today, um, whether it's employment, double vision, a visual field loss, um, confidence, Vision Australia has a suite of 12 services that pretty much deals with all of those areas to help get somebody back on track. So um, when it's a visual field or a another visual problem that you're suffering from stroke, please rest assured that Vision Australia is there um, and we are pretty expert at dealing um, and helping people get their lives back on track from any aspect. Um, so, um, And our offices are still open during the COVID situation. Great. Um, what are some of the other services that, uh, that Vision Australia can offer? Okay, so um, library services. So you can download a, a, an app on your phone or have a Wi-Fi enabled device and um, have hundreds of thousands of books, periodicals, newspapers, what have you down uh, to be enjoyed. Um, we do education and employment support. So if you can no longer work in the area that you were working in prior to your stroke, we can help retrain you. We can help you find a job. We can make sure that the employer is well suited to take you on for that job so that there is pretty much no excuse if you can do that job we can get subsidies from the government um, to help you set up to do that job and we'll follow up with you to make sure that you're happy in that job so we sort of work as a training organization recruitment consultancy for people who have blindness or vision impairment um, we have aids and equipment that uh, people can trial so we've got the late, very latest technology um, we can help you use the adaptive 
um, um, programs on your computer, your iPhone, your tablet. Um, we have social support groups where you can come in or join via telephone or the internet with groups of people who have suffered similar situations and really understand where you're coming from. So you get that emotional support and you're around people that actually understand what it is that you can no longer do because of your vision. Um, um, we can help you even get funding to access all of these services. So whether it's the NDIS or My Aged Care, where we can do all that paperwork for you um, from that perspective. Okay, great. Now, one of the themes that came up there, which we I think we've touched on a couple of times before, is this idea of um, finding work uh, after a stroke and after getting vision problems and some of the, the challenges there and having to change careers. And this is where I think it's it's a good time to talk to Nikki about it because you have really changed direction <laughs> since your stroke, haven't you, Nikki? I have indeed, yes, yes. Could you tell us about um, how you've done what you've done? Yeah, sure. As I said um, as I said earlier, I worked in public relations doing event management and, you know, I, I realised relatively quickly I was not going to be able to work the way I, I used to be able to work. Um, and when I was a teenager, I used to – fashion design was the happy little place I'd go to in my, in my head, my little happy escape place – but I thought um, fashion design was a ridiculously unpractical thing to do. So I pursued things that were more practical and set up a relatively practical life. But um, yeah, when I lost my vision and there was a, quite a domino effect of, of things that fell apart around me and my little world turned upside down and I was feeling quite, um, I was feeling really quite crushed um, and my confidence was very low and I was a single mum with these two beautiful little boys and uh, I thought there's no way I want to be a crushed, unconfident mum. It's not who I am. My children deserve the very best of me. So I instinctively reached for that aspirational thing, that dream, something to kind of pull me back up into and to connect me to the things that, that made me feel uh, creative and light and joyous and confident. So, yes, I... Um, I, I went. I've challenged myself to um, to create my first collection in 2015. I created it for the Prix de Mary Claire Awards, which are online awards. You you get everything. You you create your designs and photograph them and put them in what's called an electronic lookbook, and you send that in on a USB. And uh, I did all that. I decided in January I was going to do it. And upon receipt of it, the public relations manager at Marie Claire called me to say, thank you very much for your entry, but the, the fashion component of the Prix de Marie Claire Awards is only on every second year and this isn't one of them. <laughs> but she didn't bin it. She did not bin my collection. She actually sent it through to the um, to the fashion editor and she sent it through to the um to the chief editor because of the story that was uh, attached to it. So that got me thinking maybe I maybe I could actually turn this in into work and, and how would that feel meaningful to me? And that was when Blind Grit was born, the, the, the label uh, that I currently have, Blind Grit, which is built entirely of and around people who live with disability. So everything except the manufacturing, all the fabulous, fun, aspirational, creative jobs and modelling, photography, um, hairdressing, makeup, social media, graphic design, obviously the clothes designing itself, all those wonderful fun things that sit behind the creation of a fashion brand. 
are and will be done by people who live with disability. Fantastic. Uh, why, why have you chosen that approach? I created that first collection, I guess, with the intent to to heal um, from things that had been traumatic, including losing my vision and everything that came from that. I thought, I, I guess I wanted to bring as many people along for the journey as possible, people who who would find it difficult to um, have the privilege of aspiration in their work. I think it's something we take for granted growing up as able-bodied people. Um, and I think the fact that I spent, you know, the first half of my life uh, as an able-bodied person, uh, someone who did not have a disability, you know, I, I grew up with that privilege and and probably didn't take full advantage of it. It's amusing that uh, I'm pursuing my dream as a person who lives with disability. You know, I think it, I think it's very important to um, think much more broadly than just entry level positions for people who who live with disability. To um, to connect people, to give people the opportunity to connect with their dreams and their aspirations, I think is incredibly powerful in releasing people's potential. Absolutely. Well, uh, from that, Kath, let's take a let's take a step back from that then. Oh, um, awesome. In terms of the support that Stroke Line can offer uh, to people with vision problems, um, can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so um, Stroke Line can help, I guess, give advice and put you in contact with the right people at the right time to get the best outcome for your situation. We can help to identify what you have tried, what is working, what is not working, and point you in the direction of the right services. Um, I guess with Stroke Line, it's important to know that anybody can call, including stroke survivors, carers, family and friends, and health professionals. Um, we can provide education and give basic tips, basic emotional support, and talk about how a stroke can really impact you. Um, we talk to a lot of stroke survivors and, and loved ones, so we have a good understanding of what many people go through. Um, it may help to understand that, yes, it's okay to feel this way, uh, or I'm not alone in what I'm going through, or hear you know great stories that, like what Nikki has said about, about um, getting back to the workplace and, and things can happen like that. Um, Nikki, can I just ask you, do you have any other advice that you would give people with vision problems after a stroke? Uh, yes, go go easy on yourself. It's um, it's a huge adjustment. It's a really huge adjustment. And um, and your your brain will it will help you. Yeah, I I'm just fascinated by the way that my brain feels things in for me um, and I guess focus yeah be kind to yourself and, and focus on on what you love what comes easy to you because just because it comes easy to you does not mean that it's easy and um, there will absolutely be all sorts of awesome things you can do um, and just you know just go easy on yourself take your time your brain will feel in all sorts of awesome things and and look at what you love, look at what comes easy and, and build on that. Fantastic. And Nabil, um, what would your final words be for people with vision problems? Um, I, my, my very strong final words would be that um, 
there is an organization that can help you if your stroke is affecting your vision um, and there is no stone we will leave unturned to help you um, achieve your goals and aspirations um, and that's exactly what Vision Australia is designed to do um, so it doesn't matter where you are in Australia um, how old you are um, if you've lost vision because of a stroke um, please come and see us you don't need to um, have a referral from your doctor although many doctors will refer to us um, and rest assured that we will we will try everything we can uh, we have lots of services in place aids equipment um, we can come to you you don't have to come to us to our clinics um, and um, help you source the funding that you're entitled to to receive those services and uh, equipment that's fantastic and i'm sure that um when people call stroke line they can be referred to vision australia as well if, if necessary Definitely. uh well thank you very much nikki and thanks nabil um kath if i'll just get you to finish up now what are your top tips for people with vision problems after a stroke yeah sure so i guess um vision loss it can be a quite an invisible or hidden disability um i guess disclose to people if, if you feel comfortable with with what you're experiencing and how they can help you out um, it might be just asking someone to approach you from a certain side um, if there are things that you find helpful then share these if, if you like with family and friends like um, the bill said you know there's so many practical tips that that you can implement to make life easier um, so don't be afraid to get help um, especially through through stroke line or through vision Australia as well um, if you don't get help you may not know that these things are available and there's lots of aids as Nabil has touched on and similar to what Nikki said so um, to be kind to yourself is, is really important I think life can be hard and it is okay to let yourself feel frustrated or angry or sad at times but you know there might be there might be um, a point where things can shift a little bit and and I guess um, you know instead of being behind the wheel and concentrating on traffic the new focus might become it might turn into talk talking whilst you're walking with your kids and hearing how they see the world so I've had lots of stories about people adapting um, to become an even better photographer for example with a need for attention to detail and and others like Nikki thrive thriving in the work that they do and in their careers so I guess yeah call stroke line call vision Australia um, we can direct check and give you tips um, and have a look at our Enable Me website and our resources on vision as well. Fantastic. Thank you, Kath. Now, remember, if you do want to speak to a health professional uh, like Kath about this or any other topic, you can call Stroke Line on 1-800-787-653. That is 1-800-STROKE. Or you can ask a question through Enable Me and get a response from health professionals and other stroke survivors. Um, Nabil, I should have asked you, how can people get in touch with Vision Australia? All right. Um, as I mentioned, we are national, so we have 30 offices across the country, um, and there's a national number of 1300 847 466. Or they can um, access lots of resources um, at our on our online site, Vision Australia, all one word, dot org. Fantastic. Thank you. Oh, and Nikki, I should ask while we're going around, how can people find more about Blind Grit? Uh, if you just Google, Blind Grit, I think we should come up, but the website is www.blindgrit.com. So, um, and please follow our, um, please follow us on Instagram because my incredible um, 
social media manager Debbie Larson is also vision impaired and it absolutely makes her day, her week, her month when she gets new people following her. So, so please follow her on Instagram. You'll make her so happy. Now, if you are listening and you like what you've heard today, please give us a good rating and review on your podcast app as that helps bump us up in the search ratings so that people can find our podcast. Now, thanks once again to Vision Australia for the help with this podcast and thanks to our guests, Nikki Hind, Nabil Jacob and Catherine Yong. That's all for today's Enable Me podcast. You can find out more on this topic and continue the conversation or listen to other podcasts in the series at enableme.org.au. It's free to sign up and you can talk with thousands of other stroke survivors, carers and supporters. You can also suggest a topic or provide feedback on this podcast. Enable Me has qualified health professionals from StrokeLine who can answer your questions and give evidence-based advice. The advice given here is general in nature and you should discuss your own personal needs and circumstances with your healthcare professionals. The music in this podcast is signed by stroke survivor Antonio Ianella and his band The Lion Tamers. It was recorded at Antonio Studio, which you can find out more about at facebook.com slash studio4four99. That's F-O-U-R-99. This Enable Me podcast series is produced by the Stroke Foundation in Australia, working to prevent, treat and beat stroke. See strokefoundation.org.au.